CBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for joining us as we end yet another week on Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Uh, very glad to have everybody with us for our show today. You know, as, as we uh, head toward the election, which is now just about six plus weeks away, there, there are two topics that continue to dominate an awful lot of the news headlines. Of course, the coronavirus, but but voting and voting issues as well. And, and, and often those two issues seem inextricably linked, which we will, in fact, discuss today. Um, The New York Times, for instance, has got a new report uh, that officials at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services have been posting their own politically motivated content on the CDC website without input or review from CDC scientists, which is a fairly shocking allegation that we'll get into at some point today. And, And as I mentioned in the headlines on the show, Uh, The University of Georgia has just reversed course. They initially said they were not going to open a polling place on campus for fear of spreading the coronavirus in what they thought would be confined spaces. Uh, It was both Republicans and Democrats who objected uh, to that. And so the university has reversed course and has found a a big enough place to hold uh, uh, elections, uh, to have a polling place for uh, students. We're going to talk about that, and we're going to talk about an interesting Knight Foundation report on uh, college student voters as well. So that's our show today. Um, public health and the coronavirus as political tools, uh, a look at the elections that are taking place in the state of Georgia uh, coming up and some of the issues surrounding them and more. Uh, it's Friday, and that means that uh, my partner today, as he is every Monday and Friday, is Jim Galloway, the lead political writer for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Jim, glad to have you with me. Tell uh, You know what we stopped doing? We stopped giving people a preview of what was going to be in your Sunday column. You, we see you on Wednesdays and Sundays in the AJC. Tell, you've got a piece on how the coronavirus may affect people and their and the and school choice right well, yeah yeah well i'm just uh, it's it's a it's a column that just says that that says this pandemic may revive uh uh the, the debate the perennial debate that we've had over school vouchers uh there's a there's a there's a there's an interesting request that's coming out of the american for federation for children uh the, the organization formerly headed up by betsy devos uh, asking uh, Governor Kemp to spend the last twenty million of federal relief for education on uh, on micro grants to to individual parents. Yeah, um, you've already put that column up online at this point. Yes, sir, it's up. So, uh, Amelia Brock, we can post a link on our social media so people can read the Galloway column. Um, we, our other journalist on today's show is Thomas Wheatley. He is the articles editor for Atlanta Magazine. Thomas, uh, welcome. Your first time on Political Rewind. You, I Thank believe, you so spent seven, yeah, seven years at Creative Loafing, the city of Atlanta's alternative newspaper, which launched the careers of any number of journalists before you went to Atlanta Magazine, I think about three years ago, if I got that right? Correct, yeah. Um, joined Atlanta Magazine, uh, and, and there I'm uh, covering politics, social social justice, um, anything that kind of find I find interesting. Grew up in Cobb County, went to Marietta High School. I read somewhere that you said you could not imagine a better job than whether it was at Creative Loafing or now at Atlanta Magazine, than writing about the city that you love. So thank you for yeah. joining us for the show today. Thanks for having me. We're I appreciate also, it. Uh, very glad, we're also very glad to be joined by Senator John Kennedy, uh, who is um, in, what, your sixth year now? You were, you were first elected, I think, to the state Senate in 2014. Have I got that right, Senator? That's right, Bill. Yes, in 2014. I think it was a sign of how your colleagues in the Senate viewed you in terms of uh, your very first term and the potential you had. They, you were, you served as Governor Deal's floor leader in the very first term in uh, the Senate. You went on to be, I think, elected 
uh, caucus chairman for the Senate majority after that, and uh, you're on uh, just about all the important committees in the uh, state Senate. So you've had a very successful career as a legislator so far, it seems to me, yeah? Well, thank you, Bill. You're very kind. I appreciate that. Uh, I really consider myself very blessed to have been given some really good opportunities at an early stage uh, in politics, and it was a real honor for Governor Deal to ask me to serve as his floor leader as I came in as a freshman, and that was quite an education. Uh, you know, when you come into the legislature uh, as a freshman, you don't have much interaction with the executive branch, and, and quite frankly, but for my experience in working in his office, those first two years uh, would not have much knowledge about how that executive branch operates. And so it was, it was a great education, a great opportunity, and, and a, a, a chance to make some connectivity there uh, that I, I think helped, uh, helped my constituents and, and, and me. And then I've been, I've been very fortunate to uh, be uh, entrusted uh, by my colleagues or trusted by my colleagues uh, in, the, in the Senate. Uh, so thank you. You're, you're kind. So we should say you're talking to us from Macon. You represent a portion of Bibb County, Houston County, uh, Crawford, Monroe Peach, all of those middle Georgia, that middle Georgia area. So a couple notes that I want to uh, uh, talk with you about before we move on. One, your office is overlooking the Okmulgee River, and uh, we're, we get to see each other on WebEx uh, although we can't broadcast that, unfortunately. And you showed us the camera out the window. The, the Okmulgee has overflown its banks in your area, hasn't it? it? It has, Bill. Our rivers and creeks are high right now, as I suspect they are all across the state. And uh, it is. And it's rapidly moving and a lot deeper than it usually is. And that's probably complicating some of the uh, construction work going on, the I-75, I-16 interchange that we in Macon and Middle Georgia are very grateful for, uh, but you're right, the rivers and creeks are high. Finally, on a lighter note, you grew up in Adrian, Georgia. Okay, Senator, I'll set you up. How small is Adrian, Georgia? <laughs> Thanks, Bill. I appreciate that. You're very kind as well. It's a small town of 800 people, about halfway between Macon and Savannah. Uh, and and I tell you, people ask me all the time, well, well, how small is that? Or how small, what was it like growing up in a small town of 800 people? And I say, well, we used to watch the Andy Griffith show to see how city folks lived. All right. We, I had to give you a chance. It's a great joke. Uh, we're also joined today uh, by Nikita Hemingway. Nikita is a Gwinnett County resident. She's running uh, for a house seat. Uh, that right now is uh, in the hands of uh, Republican Chuck F. Stration. Chuck on the show just last week, and we thought we should have Nikita come in and uh, get an opportunity to talk with us as well. Nikita, you're an entrepreneur, but you all do you do farming in Gwinnett County as well? Did I read that? Yes. So um, I am a cut flower farmer. Wow. Really. Yes. So how? Okay, more what, please. How? What is Jim? Yes. Tell us more about that. So um, my grandparents were rice farmers off of coastal Georgia. My husband is a fifth generation farmer. Um, his family um, are corn farmers in central Illinois. Farm still, you know, active now, um, and hopefully will be more generations to come. And it was just an opportunity for us to kind of share our love of the land with our children. Um, I love flowers. Uh, I love creating things. And um, this was just something new. It was a, a great opportunity. Wow. So we've been doing this for about two years. We're still building our farm, but um, it's an exciting adventure. Wow. Okay, well, thank you for joining us for the first time on Political Rewind today as well. Um, let's get started on topics. Jim Galloway, uh, let's talk about your alma mater, the University of Georgia, which did cause quite a, a stir when the university announced that it did not want to open a polling place on campus out of concerns. They're trying to tamp down the coronavirus. They had almost 1,000 cases at one point. They've cut it down considerably, and they said at least they were concerned that opening a polling place might spread the virus again. But, boy, that got a quick reaction yeah, yeah, yeah. from many yeah. people on both sides of the aisle. 
Yeah, they were they were worried about the spread of COVID nineteen, and yet uh, uh, we have uh, we have a football sk- uh, game scheduled for the first uh, Saturday in October. Uh, and so, so there was a little bit of contradiction there. You have it's it's real. It's very rare to see Stacey Abrams and somebody from Brad Raffensperger's office, the Secretary of State's <laughs> office, agree so quickly in a single afternoon. Both of them condemned uh, this decision, and I think by what six o'clock. Uh, the, the, uh, the the decision had been overturned, and it's now uh, Stegman. I think Stegman Coliseum is going to be the the the, the, the new yes. indoor site, in the new indoor voting site. Yes. Um, Thomas, a couple things about this. Uh, number one, the swift reaction to me, among other things, is an amazing. Um, un- it, it really tells us how um, much people want to be able to vote. In November, it tells us the appetite for this election is enormous, doesn't it? Yes. Oh, no. I mean, and it's not just that the appetite is enormous, but um, people are paying attention to voting issues. Um, And what I think uh, confused me the most about what um, about UGA's decision was, you know, also my alma mater, love them, but man, bad decision was that people are going to be watching these kinds of decisions and, um, and and actions taking place, and they are going to, um, depending usually on their political leanings, they are going to feel one way or the other about it. And you have to be transparent and open and intentional about any of these polling location decisions. Um, and I think they made the right move. It's just I, I, I just didn't understand the, the logic behind it to begin with. I mean... Uh, UGA has plenty of open spaces. I, 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 I said that they should go to uh, North Campus and just put up a bunch of canopies they're not using for tailgating, you know, <laughs> and put the voting machines under there. Um, so it's the it's it's the right decision. Senator, um, one of the it, you know it's interesting that Brad Raffensperger weighed in and said we've got to do this. You really need to open uh, because there's an expectation that most of the voters at University of Georgia are likely to vote Democratic. I think some seventy percent of uh, college students surveyed by the Knight Foundation uh, said they plan to vote for Joe Biden. Yeah, Bill, I think uh, you're right. That was and is an interesting dynamic, uh, and those numbers may be right. Um, but I think it's interesting and a credit to Secretary Rassenberger that regardless of uh, the assumption about the political leanings that he came out and said, hey, uh, he supported the fact that we need and that the University of Georgia ought to have a, a polling place. I, I kind of agree with Thomas. I, I don't know what the thinking was behind the initial idea other than, the Board of Regents and the University of Georgia, as many other institutions, have really struggled with where is that proper balance between uh, access and public health concerns. Um, and, but when you put that decision in the context of, uh, as Jim Galloway said, and, and, and Thomas, football games coming up and all the other activities, but wait a minute, we're going to restrict voting, that, that didn't did not resonate well, and I'm glad that, uh, and I think it was entirely appropriate to reverse that decision so that folks, regardless of what your assumptions about their leanings are, everyone who uh, legally has a right to vote ought to be able to vote, and we need to make, uh, make those opportunities available. So, uh, by the way, while you've got the ball, I should say that I stopped tweeting me. It's Okmulgee with a hard G, not a soft G, as I said. Right, Senator? It is, Bill, and I didn't want to correct you, but it is. Thank uh, you. Okay. Yes, yes, sir. <laughs> All right. I just don't need any more tweets on that. Hey, uh, Nikita, while we're talking about voting practices here, uh, the Secretary of State's office announced this week that they have already sent out 1.1 million absentee ballots. And this is in the beginning, this is the first stage of their uh, absentee ballot. <laughs> Uh, yes. uh, 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 effort. That's astonishing, and it's going to just grow and grow and grow, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. You know, every election cycle, we talk about the need to secure our process around voting um, to ensure that everyone who is legally qualified to vote can participate in the democratic process. 
quite frankly, it's alarming to me that we're still in 2020 reliant upon paper ballots as a means for our citizens to cast their votes when they can't make it to the post. I think, personally, the writing's on the wall. We've got to be more aggressive in our efforts to secure our democratic process by exploring new ways to allow voters to be able to cast their ballots. You know, we have the technology. I mean, for Pete's sake, Elon Musk is selling cars right now that can take you from point A to point B without a driver behind the wheel. And we're still relying upon paper ballots. We absolutely must take this opportunity to reevaluate how we move forward with democracy in this country. Okay, I know. I, okay, but I want, Jim, before you weigh in, um, Nikita, I want to make sure I understand something here. I mean, it is President Trump who has complained that absentee ballots, mail in ballots, can be uh, uh, are, are fraught with fraud, uh, but there's no evidence that that, in fact, is the case. Um, are, are you suggesting that absentee balloting by sending your ballot in, a paper ballot, is not, uh, in fact, a, uh, a realistic way to, bal- to, to uh, is not going to give you an honest count? No, that's not what I'm suggesting at all. What I'm suggesting is that our, okay. current, our current voting process costs government $50 per taxpayer. One of the arguments that was made early on in this process after the primaries was that sending out an absentee ballot to every voter in the state of Georgia costs too much money. There are countries that are not as technologically advanced as the United States who are reliant upon technology like blockchain to create options for voters to be able to cast their ballots without All having right. to physically I'm glad you... go to a location. Yes. If, 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 Thank you, know, you for if, clarifying if I could... that. I wasn't sure I understood that. Yeah. If I could jump in, it just—I mean, we've got, we've got, we've got two state lawmakers. One in the one's running for a house seat. The other's a, a sitting, a sitting member of the Senate. Just uh, if, if, if I could get you both to just talk briefly about in your in your camp, you're both you're both on the ballot in November. How are you? How are you balancing uh, outreach to to people who are going to go to the polls in person versus people who are going to be voting absentee? Uh, in each, uh, you're you're in Bibb County, uh, Senator uh, Ms. Hemingway. You're in you're in uh, Gwinnett. Uh, 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 is is, is uh, just give us a, give us a little bit of a rundown on on your strategies here, Senator. Yeah. So, oh, go ahead. Okay. Yeah. Um, Jim, you're right. The sort of the basis of the question is this is a very odd season to be campaigning, uh, and a lot of my colleagues that do have opposition uh, in, in, and are on the ballot and have opposition in, in the November election are finding it very difficult because uh, the old school of going door to door, not only um, is it uh, it's the most effective, but it's also potentially the most offensive. People don't want folks knocking on their doors, especially politicians nowadays. Uh, so there's a real challenge there, um, and it's, I, I've seen it more with my colleagues. I'm, I'm fortunate that I've, I'm not opposed in the November election, so I, I don't have uh, sort of the active apparatus, if you will, uh, of a campaign machine uh, uh, this cycle. Uh, but a lot of my colleagues, of course, do, and, uh, and, and it's, it's, it's a struggle to try to find that balance of how much uh, personal touch can you do? Um, what is effective? What's not offensive? And uh, just finding new ways to reach out uh, and and have those campaigns. Nikita. Yes. Yeah, so what we're doing is um, we're we're sending out mailers to voters who did not get those ballots mailed to them by um, the Secretary of State and having them complete the application so that they can request absentee ballots. You know, this pandemic is impacting many families um, in economic ways, and we want to make sure that they have an opportunity to have their voices heard. We're also encouraging voters in our district to vote early. Um, When you vote early, you get out to the polls. We anticipate that it will not be as crowded as on election date. You will have an opportunity to cast your ballot in a safe and secure way. 
All right. Um, I want to talk about young voters. Thomas, um, the Knight Foundation uh, commissioned a they have a huge project underway this past year called the 100 million project. It's a they started with a a study of 12,000 what they call persistent non voters uh, in order to understand the challenges to getting people out to the polls. And when they looked at 18 to 24-year-olds who are eligible to vote, many of whom had voted before or were at least registered, they found, and this was at the beginning of the year, that those uh, people were far less interested in voting for president in 2020 uh, than even the, the people who didn't vote, who never voted, the chronic non-voters. So that was at the beginning of the year. But Thomas, mm-hmm. let me just finish this quickly and turn it over to you. But in the aftermath of the COVID-19 uh, pandemic, they went out and they looked at 4,000 young people, and suddenly things changed dramatically. Uh, and among those 4,000, they found that 50% led by college women and Democrats say they are, quote, absolutely certain they'll vote this year. Um, and this is when they said they're more likely to vote for uh, Biden than Trump. But they also said they lack confidence in the legitimacy of the 2020 election, and they are likely to doubt the results of the election. So, okay, so there I take all that, deal, deal with it as you will. And, and if I remember correctly, <clears throat> excuse me, they, um, they're just, they plan to vote for Biden, but they're not too excited about him, which is, you know, which is what Yeah, they're not enthusiastic. A, yeah, which is what, uh, you know, we've been, we've been hearing and seeing for, for quite a while now that um, that it's it's more of a vote against Trump than it is a, a vote necessarily for Biden for some people, um, but uh, but and, and this is one of the reasons why I think that that you know the decision by UGA was was so strange. They are a if you are just acting um, if, or if you're just thinking about what your what your constituents need and constituents at UGA are you know mostly students. Um, then, then why not just give them options? I mean, people people are really ready for this election. The people, you know, people that I talk to, my friends, uh, you know, they, they they're they're pumped up about this. They're not necessarily excited about the candidates, but um, they're very hopeful about what's coming. Yeah, Bill, um, if I could jump in here, if, uh, if I could jump in here, you, uh, yeah, uh, you mentioned earlier we've got one point one million. Uh, absentee ballot requests already processed, uh, uh, a lot of it through the online portal that uh, Brad Raffensperger has set up. That's that's that matches all of the absentee ballots cast in the June nine primary, and it, it amounts to to more than a quarter of the votes cast in both twenty sixteen and twenty eighteen total in Georgia. So that's that is that is just a and and, and it's only going to grow larger the, this percentage. So so it's it's that's a that's a huge huge mail in votes and I am really anxious to find out you know what the what the uh, the, the voting histories of of the people who are making these requests. Senator, um, without regard to your specific election, but looking at statewide elections, the Senate race number one, Ossoff and Purdue, and Senate race number two with all of those candidates bunched up together, um, we do expect this year that Democrats will vote absentee in larger numbers than Republicans. So if that's the case, and we do have this enormous turnout of absentee voters, what do you think that does to chances of Republicans running, either at, either for President Trump or those Republicans running in those statewide races? Well, Bill, it, it, uh, it's, it's going to be interesting, but I think it's going to be very difficult to predict uh, until we get to November. I, I don't necessarily disagree with the premise of your question of the likely profile of those that, that, uh, that ask for absentee ballots uh, and, and the other comments that you made. Um, you know, one of the interesting, um, I, I think part of what we're seeing is tied back to your earlier comment about COVID-19. I think somewhat that this is somewhat tied together that folks have more time at home. Uh, some are more away from work. Unfortunately, some are still out of work. And you've got um, this, this uh, element of time that we don't usually have to devote 
to, uh, to politics, uh, and unfortunately some people I've heard say when I ask them, you know, gee, why didn't you vote? Well, I got too busy, or I was at work, or I had these things going on, and I think if there is one silver lining or a silver lining to COVID-19, it's allowed people to focus on the voting process. People have paid more particular attention to the issues, to the candidates, and I think some of that is to explain uh, why we do have an increased interest uh, larger numbers for a request for ballots, uh, and an expectation, as Jim was referring to, of, of larger numbers and just larger voter turnout. Nikita, though, you're encouraging absentee and early balloting because you do believe, I assume, that Democrats are going to turn out either whether it's by voting absentee by mail or turning out for early voting in larger numbers, and you can build up a, a good total that way, don't you think? Yes. Yes, I do. But also, let's speak to the times. I mean, 2020 is totally different from 2018. You know, we have civil unrest in this country. We're in economic recession. We're in the middle of a pandemic. The voters, the citizens of this country and the state are tired. You know, and it's, you know, what do we do? How do we pivot from here when the leaders that we've elected to represent our voices have failed us? You know, there are leadership from the top of the ballot, you know, down to, to the governor and, and some of these seats, they're currently failing. You know, when we talk about UGA's decision to um, initially close the, the poll location and now they're reopening, let's also share that responsibility with government because schools and businesses take their direction from the government. And when we don't have a consistent message across the board, how can we effectively run society? So the citizens are upset. You know, one of the things I'm excited about with the youth is that they're choosing not to be silent anymore. We saw that after the end of the Parkland shootings. These kids are rising up. They're making their voices heard. And they're fighting for the, the values that matters most to them. And I think it's time. And, and I'm really excited about this election cycle. Um, I think it will help push our country forward. It will let us understand more the needs of our community. So, yeah, um, let's look at those numbers and see how we can and grow from this moment. All right. Nikita Hemingway, thank you for uh, giving us uh, what I imagine is something you're talking about on the campaign trail uh, pretty frequently. I want to turn to one last issue before we take our break that relates specifically to the election, and I'd like to do that with you, Senator. The um, Macon-Bibb Commission, this week, I, I, I want to make sure I get say this right. I think they voted to open the door for the possibility of expanding how people can vote in November, right? They want, they're talking about at least offering maybe an additional polling place or two. But the other thing I thought was interesting, there was some talk about whether there ought to be one Sunday of early voting as well. I thought all of that was fascinating. That your, part of your constituency is in that community. What do you think about uh, their uh, thinking about opening up more locations and a Sunday vote? Well, um, if I could, I, I think to put it in proper context, Bill, I, I think what this, the commission did was uh, pass a resolution, an urging resolution, uh, if you will, yeah. to the Board of Elections. So as I understand it, it would, it's, not non, it's not binding, uh, but it is a, a, the voice. I think it was a five to three vote by the commission uh, uh, of this suggestion to the Board of Elections. And I think it's, we've got some good commissioners. Our commission as a whole is, has, has done well for Macon, and I think they're well-intended. And I think, again, anything that we can do to make sure that everyone that has the legal right to vote has that full opportunity uh, is probably worth noting that this is a resolution, and it's also a resolution to a board that is an independent board, an independent body. And that body is appointed to make those decisions. Uh, with regard to polling places and, and issues concerning how our elections are run on a local, on a local level. So um, uh, the addition of, of polling places uh, is, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of hard to argue with that. But again, I'm not on that board. And I think, uh, I think especially those of us that serve uh, in, the, in the legislature need to be mindful of these decisions are appropriately made on the local level. These boards 
uh, are in the best position to know for each of their communities or their counties that they cover uh, what's best and how do we best allocate those resources so that folks, uh, folks can vote. So I take that as a definite, I'm not going to get involved in this at all. I'll leave it to the local official. Have I got that about right, Senator? <laughs> I think that's right. Uh, again, I agree with the concept okay. of making sure, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> okay, thank you for the, Thank you for your candor on that. Let's do this. Let's get our first break of the show out of the way. When we come back, Galloway, the amounts of money that are being dumped into the two Senate races in Georgia are so staggering, they're hard to wrap our arms around. We need to talk about that for a few minutes. We'll do that after these messages. <laughs> We're joined on Political Rewind today by my Monday and Friday partner, Jim Galloway, by Thomas Wheatley, uh, articles editor for Atlanta Magazine, his first appearance on the show, uh, by Senator John F. Kennedy uh, from Macon, and uh, Nikita Hemingway, candidate for uh, state legislature, state house, out in Gwinnett County. Before we return to the conversation, a quick program note. Um, I've said this before, but I'll say it again. Today marks the end of 26 weeks that uh, we've been doing this show uh, from remote locations, sheltering in place, me from my house just outside the city of Decatur. And it's gone on so long now, and the end is not in sight to when we're going to get back to whatever normal life will look like, that I thought it was about time that I had an appointment on the couch of psychiatrist Dr. Raymond Kotwicki, the chief medical officer at Skyland Trail. And so on Monday, Dr. Kotwicki and I are going to talk about the emotional uh, and mental stresses that many of us are feeling, and Kotwicki is going to talk to me about how to get over uh, some of the concerns that I feel at times, but, but it's not about me. I think many of you out there, too, are struggling. So uh, I'll be the one to lie down on Kotwicki's couch, but you're all invited to join me for that uh, conversation. All right, let's get back to our conversation about topics for today. Jim, let me, you put up in the jolt, which you oversee at AJC.com every day, some amazing numbers. And you got them from Rick Dent, who really knows about media spending, one of the real experts. I don't know why we haven't dead on the sh- haven't had him. We'll get him in here. You point out that Dent told you $36 million has already been spent or reserved for TV and radio spots in the race for the Kelly Leffler seat. $29 million has gone from for Leffler's bid, $7 million on behalf of other the Democratic candidates, Raphael Warnock being uh, uh, the uh, leader in that. But then you say this, $91 million spent or reserved for TV and radio in the contest for Purdue seat, uh, most of it from outside groups, of course, pro-Purdue forces, $51 million, Ossoff uh, forces, $40 million. That's in, That's crazy, Jim. And then, and then yesterday, after we posted that, uh, the, 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 another yeah. ten million was announced. You know, six million on the Democratic yeah. side, uh, three, uh, three, three and change on 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 the Republican side. Yeah, the the the, the amounts are astounding, and it, it does. I mean, what it what it means is number one is is that on when you when you're uh, when you're trying to get a moment's peace on uh, watching TV uh, at night, uh, it's the Senate race. The Senate races, not the presidential contests, that are that are going to be kind of disturbing your peace here. Uh, and what I would, what, what I would, what what I think is the most stunning thing is that all of this money is funneling into Senate races in order to uh, over control of the Senate uh, of of the of the chamber. At the same time, Donald Trump is actually uh, struggling to to for, for cash right now. The, the cash that he need that 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 would normally go into a Republican presidential came, campaign, I think, is shifting a great deal into uh, into the Republican effort to preserve their 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 control of that chamber. 
That's really fascinating, uh, Thomas Wheatley. By the way, uh, the amount of money reminds me of a joke that uh, President Obama made at a White House correspondence dinner a few years back. I think he was talking about Sheldon Adelson when he said Adelson poured so much money into defeating him in 2016 uh, that maybe what Adelson should have done was given him multi-millions just to drop out of the, him the money and he would have dropped out of the race. But Thomas, talk about this. About the astounding sums that are being spent in our state, <laughs> yet yeah. again, yeah. it's a you know it it, it seems like um, it's uh, I mean Ossoff his race was if if I remember correctly one of the most expensive uh, when he ran you know last time, um, and so it's a uh, I, I'm I'm wondering um, how these how this is going to kind of play out because. Uh, you watch. I'm just now starting to see Warnock on TV um, and seeing him on Fox News, which is which is kind of interesting to to see the ads there. Um, and I'm getting a lot of the uh, kind of boogeyman ads about John Ossoff that he is uh, he and his socialist army are coming to to take our tax dollars. <laughs> so it's going to get very very heated, um, I imagine. Um, and with only yeah, with only more money piling in, Georgia is. We've heard it for years and years that Georgia is. You know, is it a swing state? Is it a swing state? And we're getting closer and closer to that to that being the case. You know, you, uh, you know, actually, Thomas, you're making a really good point because you've got all this money uh, pouring into the 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 Ossoff Purdue race. You've got Leffler really dominating. The 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 the, 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 the kind of all comers U.S. Senate race, the, the Senate race number two, and and so you have Raphael Warnock, kind of the the chosen Democrat in this contest, really getting shut out on the on the TV airwaves, and you know that that's that's if you if you're a Democrat, I, I think you would probably be very concerned about that because it increases the likelihood. That you have, you'll have two Republicans, Leffler and Doug Collins, in in the January fifth runoff that follows the November third election. Mm-hmm. So, Senator, um, I want to follow up on all this with you. By the way, of course, it was Obama in two thousand twelve. That's mistake number two for me on the show today. Um, but, Senator, uh, how do you believe that the money pouring into Georgia, as Thomas Wheatley suggests, is um, is because these races? especially race number one, so close. I saw all the polling shows Ossoff and Purdue running neck and neck, and uh, race number two is likely to be a close race as well. I I do, Bill, and there's a couple of other things that are unique this year. This is one of uh, the first times in many, many cycles uh, where both U.S. Senate seats in Georgia are up on the same ticket. And so I think uh, that is one of the things that we're not used to seeing, of course. We're not used to seeing those kind of media numbers coming in and, and that amount of advertising dollars coming to Georgia. Uh, of course, we see it uh, in the normal cycle, but, but these, are, these are certainly excessive <laughs> in some respects. And I think the other aspect of this is uh, what's going to be interesting with the, what's referred to as the jungle primary with so many people in, in that race um, uh, that a lot of folks think that we're going to have a runoff, which means the date of that runoff is, uh, what is it, January 8th, I think? Is Ge- that right? January 5th. January, January 5th. 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 So 5th. we very well could have a situation where, um, depending on what happens nationally with the elections for the uh, U.S. Senate, that the balance of power of the U.S. Senate may be determined by a runoff race in January. So um, by the by, by the uh, Georgia, uh, whoever wins there, and so um, th- you know that, that's just an added dynamic I think that's causing additional um, monies to come into Georgia, but additional um, uh, focus uh, on that race uh, and when what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nikita, um, it's it's we now know that politics is driven from the top, not. It's no longer the Tip O'Neill maxim that all politics is local. Everything emanates from what's happening uh, in the presidential race with how President Trump is uh, dealing with issues, how Joe Biden is responding. To what extent 
if if in fact President Trump uh, is able to win Georgia, if if it were not quite a swing state yet, as as Thomas Wheatley sort of wonders about too, uh, how much impact does that have on a state house race like yours? That's a good question. Um, I believe, regardless of who wins, Biden or Trump, is going to impact the state house race. You know, next year is redistricting. And we need to make sure that we have fair representation for every person um, in our state, not just, you know, drawing lines that are favorable for a party to hold a seat for the next decade or so. Um, I I am concerned um, that if Trump wins this election, that we will not be able to move our country forward. Um, And I believe we're going to see more division, more civil unrest, because this is not um, uniting our country. Um, And the only way that we can, you know, rebuild our economy, um, rebuild our communities, is by coming together and working together. I see Joe Biden being you know, um, more of a, a bridge builder than Trump. So um, it's not going to be good. It, it won't be good. So, okay. Okay. Let me go back, Senator. I want to give you a chance to respond if you want. I mean, to, to what extent is it, again, if all politics now is national, to what extent is it important for, um, for, for other Republicans who are in contested races in the fall, for Senate, for, for House, I mean, uh, state House and Senate, uh, to try to keep a distance from uh, President Trump. Some of his pronouncements are, are some of the things that are happening in the White House now making it harder for uh, Republicans in the state of Georgia to continue to connect with him. Obviously, that's not the case in Senate race number two. But what about in legislative races, for instance? Bill, I think it depends on what the issue is and what the district is. Uh, there are clearly some some districts in Georgia where uh, Republicans uh, are completely aligned with Trump and should be, and some would argue need to be, based on their constituency of where they are. And some districts, that's not the case. And that's obviously for each candidate to um, to look to and run that calculus for themselves. Uh, but I would, of course, as you would expect, take issue with some of Nikita's comments about the, the, the leadership and where and why, as she would argue, uh, Joe Biden is, is the bridge builder. I, th- I think that that ignores the difficult. Well, first of all, the accomplishments of the Trump administration over the last four years uh, with regard to the economy and so many other things. Uh, and uh, sure, are, are both of these candidates divisive in certain ways with certain demographics? Absolutely. Uh, but, but in looking at overall what the president has done for the last four years, the fact that he's navigated some very difficult waters uh, since February, January, February, and March that no one predicted, and uh, you, you know that's when leaders rise uh, to make it through those difficult times. And I, and I think he has done a good job. Uh, no one would have done the job perfectly. No one's going to do the job perfectly. But with regard to what we need in November, we, we don't need to be placed on a different track uh, from uh, the, the basic core values of of those uh, that that has uh, led Trump uh, and and guides uh, the leadership decisions that he's made. And I think that's why you see most Republicans in the state, the vast majority, some some would say maybe all, uh, in fact, do have an alignment with him and and acknowledge that uh, in their campaigning. So, uh, Thomas, I don't want to go. I don't want to wait. No, no, I want to. I don't want to. I was just going to say I want to turn to Thomas Nikita I because I do not want to turn the show into a Trump Biden show. That's just really we could do that on MSNBC, on Fox, on CNN. Thomas, I do want to respond to something that uh, or I want you to respond. What what Senator Kennedy says about uh, uh, Trump and the economy, the polls suggest that that a majority of Americans do think he's done a better job on the economy. I would imagine in Georgia the numbers would be similar if we had those figures in a poll. Uh, But on the coronavirus, he's way underwater. And if coronavirus is the big issue in the election, which, of course, Democrats want it to be, that could spell trouble for President Trump. Oh, I, th- I mean, I, I think it definitely could. And, and even if we do have a miracle delivery of a vaccine before, but in October or, you know, or, or anything like that, I think that it's going to um, I, I think that that's going to weigh heavily on 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 people's decisions. I mean, so many people have been affected okay. by 
this pandemic. It's it's I, I think that that will probably um, influence people more than than the economy because it's right in front of us. Okay, I've got to get to a break. Nikita Hemingway, I apologize. I'm not trying to cut you off, except I really don't want to have a show debating Trump versus Biden. I think you both, you and uh, Senator Kennedy, got a chance to make some make some of the points that you think are important for the election. I hope you agree with that. Let's get the final break of the show out of the way. We'll be right back with more on Political Rewind. Jim Galloway, you wrote a column that appeared in the Wednesday AJC and is still online um, uh, about the way in which Trump administration officials are damaging the reputation of the Centers for Disease Control. You base that column primarily first on Michael Caputo, the HHS chief communications officer who accused the CDC of trying to undermine the uh, reelection of President Trump uh, by not being willing to fight the coronavirus the way they should. Um, And you reacted to in the same way that I think many of us who live in Georgia, especially in Metro Atlanta did, which is these are our neighbors. The scientists, the researchers, the doctors at CDC have been doing yeoman's work for many years. And and it's disturbing and distressing to see them being uh, dragged down in a political current. Now, Jim, we learn something more. We learn that HHS has in fact been injecting its own content on the CDC website and, and, and publishing articles about how people should deal with the virus that are, uh, pre- are favorable to the president, but not necessarily in the best interests of science. I don't care if you're a Republican or a Democrat, but CDC has been one of the most important, respected public health institutions in the world for decades, Jim. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the 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 point the the point of the column was was number one. You've got eighty five hundred employees at 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 the CDC in in working in Metro Atlanta, and basically to say that they're harboring a band of seditious scientists in their midst is that's 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 slander. That's libel. And and what I was I, I was hoping. Uh, to to kind of get to, to 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 see some 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 elected officials uh, like like Senator Kennedy come out and at least defend uh, the the employees uh, against this and you know not necessarily to condemn Trump but at least to defend to, to defend the the people who are who are putting in the blood sweat and tears. Uh, you know, interesting. As soon as I posted that column, just within an hour of that, I had a conversation with Tom Frieden, uh, the the ex CDC director. He uh, served uh, from 2009 to 2017, and you know, and what he told me was, you know, he said he was talking about the CDC website. It gets 1.6 million clicks, and he says 99.9 percent of the things on on it are 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 technically sound. But he said there are a few. Do- he, he told me that there were a few documents that that aren't scientifically defensible, and then and and now we have this morning, two days later we have this New York Times report, on on on, on basically uh, this was the, the 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 focus is on on a CDC report that said those who had been exposed to the co- coronavirus didn't necessarily have to be tested, which has now been contradicted and 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 uh, revised by the CDC itself. Senator, um, I, 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 you, you know, I, we never. This show is not about putting people on the spot. It never has been. It's about having smart conversations. But, but Galloway makes a point here, which is, I, I can't imagine that Georgians who are close to CDC geographically, if nothing else, uh, want to see the scientists and doctors at CDC. Um, have their reputations smeared. There are a lot of reasons to wonder if Robert Redfield, as head of CDC, is a strong enough leader for the agency. But I can't imagine that you, you like many of us, don't want to see the, 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 the day-to-day workers there smeared, do you? No, Bill, of course not. And I, and I think uh, not only are they critical to uh, having gotten us through the process that we have so far, they're critical for the days ahead in, in, in our, uh, our state and our country dealing with this issue. And it's a point of pride, I think, for all Georgians to have the CDC uh, in Atlanta. Uh, and, but, but I think the core of what you're saying I agree with, which is 
it has to be uh, a non-political organization, and it has to be uh, viewed that way. And to the extent that there are um, the people that are there are being impugned in some way, uh, then no, we, we, we can't support that. And th there ought to be nothing about the CDC's work that is political. They ought to be doing what they're doing for the health uh, of our state and our nation. I want to give Nikita and then Thomas a chance before the show is over with. Nikita, weigh in on this. Yes, I agree with his sentiments. Um, protecting the integrity of the CDC's work is very important. Um, you know, science should never operate hand-in-hand -hand with policy and politics. It should always be a standalone entity because it's going to help us keep the citizens of our country safe. So. Uh, Thomas, it, it, it's, you know, what we're seeing here is the intentional undermining of yet one more institution uh, by uh, people in Washington right now who are so eager to uh, promote the, the Trump message that they'll, they don't have any, uh, there are no barricades in terms of these institutions. CDC, uh, if you don't agree with what's happening at Justice, that's fine, but C CDC doesn't deserve this, Thomas. No, no, it doesn't. And it's a um, it's 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 kind of a theme that you're seeing or, or a pattern that you're seeing leading up to the election, at least in, in, in my viewing of it, that it just it looks like desperation um, and desperation is not attractive. Uh, it is, you know, the the attorney general um, coming out and, 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 and speaking in almost a very campaign like mode uh, about official duties. It is about a uh, you know an, an agency moving in on another agency and, and and changing a presentation to the public when it's of the most important issue that we're dealing with at at, at, the, at the moment the pandemic um, to me to me it's very worrisome and it's the kind of thing that you know if you see it happen in another country you scratch your head um, so we should be really scratching our heads here it's uh, it's not normal. Um um, Jim, as we run out of time, I have to say that I shared that CDC column and, and, and my Facebook page, which I don't use very often, and said we really need to support our neighbors at CDC right here. And I suspect it's probably been one of the most shared pieces you've written in a very long time and probably had an enormous number of page views. Uh, you know, I, I can't speak to the page views. I can speak to, to, to the retweets. Yeah, yeah, it was, uh, it was, it was, it was pretty popular. All right. Jim Galloway gets the last word on today's edition of Political Rewind. Jim, uh, I won't see you Monday because I'm going to be on the couch alone with uh, Dr. Kotwicki, but I will see you a week from today. Thomas Wheatley, it was a pleasure to have you come back, please, and do the show with us again. Nikita Hemingway, good luck in your uh, race. And Senator John Kennedy from Macon, uh, thank you, too, for joining us for another edition of Political Rewind. Uh, that's it for us. Jesse Neiswanger, thanks for your work on engineering the show this week. Uh, Sam Burmis-Dawes, Amelia Brock, thank you for being in the station, doing the work while I sit here at home. I appreciate everything you do for the show. See you again on Monday. In the meantime, take care, stay healthy, wear a mask, and please go get a flu shot. Bye-bye, everybody.